None better. Oh, that is not as good as your lying tongue would have us believe. Put out your hand there, Paddy John. I split the difference with you. Ah, no, I Oh, a fine, healthy evening, Mr. Farrelly. Glory to God. Well, Buck Keith, you have your share of it, haven't you? Good evening, sir. Long years, sir. Excuse me for you, what does do him again here? Don't forget your accounts, you, on Wednesday morning. Spare a couple, Mr. Farrelly, sir. Ouch, the hell out of me, way. Well, I can't tell you the name of the play from which that extract is taken. We believe it was written by Paul Vincent Carroll, but what I can tell you is that it was recorded in February 1949, about a month and a half, in fact, before I was born, and that it's the earliest piece of recorded radio drama in the RTE archives. Two years earlier, on Monday, August the 18th, 1947, a group of actors arrived at the Radio Aaron Studios in Henry Street, Dublin, and were assigned to their duties. They were to be known as the Radio Aaron Repertory Company, now known as the RTE Players, but always affectionately called the Rep. Because of the way Radio Aaron was run, their status was deemed to be temporary, unestablished civil servants. Now, most civil servants had to sit for an exam or attend an interview, but these temporary, unestablished civil servants had to audition. It is a curious fact that novelists have a way of making us believe that luncheon parties are invariably memorable for something very witty that was said or for something very wise that was done. But they seldom spare a word for what was eaten. It is part of the novelist's convention not to mention soup and salmon and ducklings, as if soup and salmon and ducklings were of no importance whatsoever, as if nobody ever smoked a cigar or drank a glass of wine. Here, however, I shall take the liberty to defy that convention and to tell you that the lunch on this occasion began with souls, sunk in a deep dish over which the college cook had spread a counterpane of the whitest cream, save that it was blended here and there with brown spots like the spots on the flank of a dome. Let us, sir, embrace some system or other before we end this session. Do you mean to tax a medical and to draw productive revenue from this? If you do, speak out. Name, fix, ascertain this revenue. Settle its quantity, define its objects. Provide for its collection. And then fight when you have something to fight for. If you murder, rob. If you kill, take possession. And do not appear in the character of madmen as well as assassins, violent, vindictive, bloody and tyrannical, without an object. But may better counsels guide you. The voices of Mary Keane, Aileen Hart, Deirdre O'Mara, Leo Layden, Lionel Day, whose real name was Lalo D and was actually a brother of the famous Jimmy, and Joe Lynch. Voices and names that conjure up memories of a bygone age. And indeed, that's what this evening's all about. Conjuring up memories of 50 years of radio drama performed by the Rep. And to help us along on this trip down memory lane, I'm joined by Peg Monaghan, Aidan Grinnell, Colette Proctor, and from Radio Nguelth of the studios in Ballyanangal, Miholo Hay. Incidentally, when I was talking to Joe Lynch recently, and by the way, he sends his regards and regrets that he's not able to join us this evening, he described the Rep as the nicest bunch of people that you could ever meet. And he'll get no arguments from me about that. You're all very, very welcome. Michal, I'll start with you. Whose brainchild was the Rep? Well, there is little doubt about it that the man who fought hardest for the foundation of the Rep was Robardo Farrakhan, the former controller of programmes. 
he was the only begetter and he had an awful fight as you say in your your title uh, to get these unestablished unestablished civil servants in as members uh, uh, of, a, of a permanent repertory company. And you were the first producer, Mihal, assigned to them. That's right. And with uh, Roberto Farrakhan and Ria Mooney, who was then producer at the Abbey, we auditioned, I think, 400 people uh, for 18 vacancies in the very fine summer of 1947. And just, uh, as you say, we're going on a kind of a memory lane about the rep, listening to your first recording there yeah, uh, and saying it was by, by Paul Vincent Carroll. That's what we think, uh, anyway. I recall now that it is a, 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 a piece that isn't very well known. Uh, it's a play called Interlude by Paul Vincent Carroll and uh, it's one of his shorter pieces. He wrote a lot of short plays, some of which we were produced by uh, Radio Erin at the time, plays like Coggers and Interlude, but that was definitely Interlude and one of the voices, of course, was Joe Lynch, whom you quoted already. I thought I recognised that, and Hall, if anybody could identify that, it had to be you. Listen, thanks for that. Peg, you were there on the very, very first day yourself. Yes. Oh, I was very excited at the prospect of uh, a company being formed to specialise in, in radio drama, because I can remember as far back as when I was 11 years of age, uh, listening to a play on radio for the first time, uh, it was a play that Maureen e. Hewley, the Abbey actress, was putting on, and she uh, she wanted uh, young boy actors for it, and she uh, chose my brother as one of the, of the boys. He was a pupil of hers at the time, and so we were all at home listening to this. Uh, now, at home, we were always engaged in theatricals. That was our way of entertaining each other, and I couldn't for the life of me understand how a play could come out on the radio. It, you know, it puzzled me. It also fascinated me. But then it was years later, you know, when you go to your, as it, in my case, the Abbey School of Acting, <clears throat> then the stage and so on. And uh, then suddenly this opportunity presents itself. And so I was very, very excited about it. This, now I'm going to learn how it's all done. Aidan, when did you actually join? I think it was 19... 61. So you're really a new kid on the block. Oh, absolutely, and I felt like a new kid on the mm. block coming in. Not that that means I was uncomfortable with the company. I, I was received with open arms, and I like to quote what you, what you say, said at the very beginning of this program that uh, one of my my happiest years, really, outside my own company, where I was also in a team, which was Longford Productions. Mm-hmm. My happiest years after Longford Productions had failed with Edward Longford's death, were with the rep. Uh, People were really like an extended family. It wasn't a question of going to work. You you came into your family every morning. And uh, there was absolutely no feeling of rivalry or one-upmanship or... Bitchiness of any kind at all. It well, was we were all learning, Aidan, weren't we? Yes. I mean, it, it was a new art form well, for all of us. Uh, that is true, mm. but not for the older members. I was the one primarily who was learning. I was new to the microphone, although I'd been broadcasting. I had broadcasted a freelance. Oh, long, yes, yeah. long, years yeah. previously. But as a team. Uh, but as a team, yeah. it was a wonderful thing, and there was a feeling of great security. Yeah. The rep, if you like, was a unique institution as far as I know because in no other English speaking country at least 
was there um, uh, uh, the, uh, an attempt to recruit a permanent company of actors at that particular time. The BBC had a small number, about a half a dozen uh, people on Mm. short-term contracts. But, of course, London was London, and they had an enormous choice of people uh, available. But uh, in Dublin, uh, because a great number of the stage, and Aidan will remember back that, and Peg will remember, that a a great number of stage people, not a great number, a considerable number, were after five rehearsals. And the two things (laughs) coincided, rehearsals at the Abbey after Mm. five, to suit the civil servants and teachers Mm. who were cast in plays, and rehearsals after five uh, for the the radio drama. Of course, the radio drama took second place. I was talking there about Aidan being a new kid on the block. Colette Proctor, you're a mere blow-in into the rep, aren't you? How long have you been around? Junior infants at this stage. (laughs) How long have you been around? I've only been in the rep about... I'm trying to think now, probably 22 or 23 years. Uh, A mere blink of the eye of the Almighty. But I do remember... When you were talking about this, and it is a great family to belong to, Daphne Carroll saying to me when I came in first that she had been here 18 years. And I thinking to myself, how could anybody be here for 18 years? <laughs> my earliest contacts with radio drama were in my granny's kitchen on the North Strand Road, where the play was greeted, I suppose, with an almost religious reverence. And one of the voices that engraved itself on my memory belonged to Jeanette Waddell. Here she is in a scene from The Dreaming Dust by Dennis Johnston with John Stevenson. What do you wish me to do? Tell her that... No. No, you mustn't do that. Tell her... Oh, I cannot think. Am I to tell her that I am your wife? No, no, you must never do that. Never. But why, Presto, what harm can come of it now? Disaster can come of it. The most unspeakable charges to overwhelm us both. Both of us, do you understand? But surely that fear must have left you long ago, Presto. It is now almost 60 years since, since these things happened. That fear will never leave me. It is the torture of all my waking hours. It is right that our friend should suspect our marriage... But for us to confirm it in any way or to be found alone together, oh, no, 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 never. Very well, Presto. I shall tell her then that we are not married. That was Jeanette Waddell as Stella and John Stevenson as Dean Swift in the 1966 production by the author, Dennis Johnston, of his play The Dreaming Dust. Peg, you were in that yourself as well, weren't you? Yes, I had a small part as Mrs Dingley. She was a kinswoman of of Stella's. And uh, so I had plenty of opportunity to listen to the... Uh, the larger performances Um, there was always a great discussion in these historical plays but particularly in this one because of the relationship between Stella Vanessa uh, with Swift and uh, were they married or were they not married and then I remember later on in the play uh, Swift uh, rides down to Selbridge to uh, confront Vanessa and there's a wonderful hysterical scene from Una Collins uh, between Swift and and Vanessa in that, um, but as I say, there was always this uh, discussion in in mm. historical plays, and, and we took a particular interest in them. So you were all semi-intellectuals in the oh, classics. Oh, very much so. Mm. Brought our own tough <laughs> take me worth to it. <laughs> Jeanette uh, and and John, they were very very much in the grand manner, weren't they? Yes, I think um, Jeanette was absolutely um, totally acceptable as non-Irish mm-hmm. characters. I mean, ascendancy types, yeah. things like that and everything else. And I remember meeting her um, 
for the very first time in my life when I was appearing in, for the first performance of my life in a play by Sasha Gitri, a little one-act play in Trinity Players. And I was quaking in a chair, waiting to be made up. And Jeanette was the one who came along and made me up and calmed my nerves and soothed me and let me go on and do this little thing. She, she had a great fondness for horse racing, oh, hasn't she? She had a great love of horses. But I just wanted to say what, yeah. what Peg and Aidan were yeah. saying, and Jeanette made me think of it too. For us younger people yeah. in the rep then, it was a great education and it was a great way of learning um, drama and poetry and, you know, all the stuff one gets to do on radio. Yes, and the, and the older members of the rep were always extremely kind in sharing their knowledge of of things with us and one got to do things you would never get to do otherwise it was a great education in that sense but Jeanette and her horses Jeanette loved mm-hmm. the racing on the horses and she was forever coming in with these big stacks of photographs to studying show us of uh, studying form and showing us photographs of jumps uh, that horses had I got over or were just about to go over <laughs> or races she'd been at or yeah. um, the Punchestown she used to like mm-hmm. to go to the you know, the weekend, the trials and things like that. She loved all that sort of thing. But she was a very kind lady. When she was leaving um, a place she had in her later years, she invited me along to her, her apartment and asked me to take something I would like. So I have this nice little table in the corner of my front room with my lamp on it that Jeanette gave me, which I am very fond of. Lovely memory. Mihol, did you work with Jeanette very much? Oh, <coughs> very much. And, of course... Uh, she came of, 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 a, of a great theatrical family. Her father was Rutherford Maine, the Abbey dramatist, uh, who wrote many plays for the Ulster players I- in the north. And uh, uh, her aunt, of course, was Helen Waddell, the, the great translator of Chinese lyrics and of medieval poetry. And uh, she was a wonderful person. Well, it's time now for another piece of drama. This is P.J. O'Connor's adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which incidentally was first published 150 years ago. And this is how it was introduced to the listener. We now present Dracula by Bram Stoker, freely adapted for radio by P.J. O'Connor. We advise listeners who are nervous, or who may be alone or with children, that parts of this programme are quite startling. to my house. Enter freely and of your own free will. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Uh, Count Dracula? I am Dracula. I bid you welcome Mr. Harker to my house. Come in. The night air is chill, and you must need to eat and rest. (laughs) 
Bram Stoker's Dracula with Peter Dix as Jonathan Harker and Thomas Studley as the Count. Now, there's a prevailing myth that the continuity announcer Bridget Kilfeather did the Fay Ray impersonation, in other words, the scream. But uh, I have it from the horse's mouth that that is only a myth. But it does give an idea of the talent of Tom Studley and, as you said, Hall, probably the greatest radio actor ever. Studley... It's a case of heart as far as radio acting goes. Yeah, Michal, somebody, um, one of the sound operators here, he gave me a description of Studley, which I, I think is pretty good and it's pretty true, that he not only got the character right, but then he brought out all the faults and foibles in the character. That's true. He, his powers of concentration, I think, were better. He didn't come from the stage. He, he, he came, in fact, from the civil service. He, he, he came from being an established, I think, civil servant to being a non-established one <laughs> because <laughs> he worked for uh, Gaelic <coughs> Services in mm-hmm. Connemara. He also was a very f- good Irish speaker, and he's, he had a wonderful ear. And I often tell a story, I think it's worth repeating, because it confirms what... I near, nearly everybody has said about him. Uh, we once had a series called Showman's Caravan. It was based on the life and times of Val Vauzen, who was an old-time touring actor, one of those who went around the fit-ups throughout Ireland, and who was a well-known, I think they were called recitationists in those days, uh, uh, on Radio Ern. But uh, Val, like a great deal of the touring actors, he he couldn't have survived on the road without being fairly fond of a drop. And Mm -hmm. he remained fond of a drop when he came to me to do this six-part serial on his life story. And he came along one evening, everything was live, there was no recording. Uh, You were always anxious to know would uh, some of the cast, not all of the cast, be across in time uh, from uh, Jerry the Wires or, or some of the pubs uh, mm. are, 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 are around Humphreys Studio and Moore Street Indeed. or the Tower Bar. So but what happened on that night? was an old practitioner and I very stupidly uh, didn't uh, check fully before the play began. Maybe I was a little late myself fiddling with effects. Uh, and when... Uh, uh, and got his cue to come on to tell his life story. I heard nothing coming over the mic, only an indistinct kind of a mumble. He was so far over the top that he had to be moved away uh, by the other actors. And Tom Studley came forward. And not only did he give an impersonation of Val Vausden, he took the script from, Val- from Vausden's hand, he gave an impersonation of Val Vauzen a little under the weather. <laughs> so that the, the thing knitted together faultless. Continuity. I wasn't at all pleased. Yeah. And I feel, even to this day for the record, that I never adequately uh, thanked uh, Tom Studley for, for taking RTE and uh, Radio Ern out, out of a very, very difficult spot, and particularly myself, who was so remiss that I didn't check on the irrepressible Valvouzen. Well, I'm sure Tom accepts your thanks now. Hopefully he's listening to us tonight. Drama from RTE always does well in international festivals, and Radio Aaron, as it was known then, won the coveted Pre-Italia for the first time in 1961 with your own Mihol, uh, your own adaptation of Seamus Kelly's story, The Weaver's Grave. The weaver was a dream. 
Maybe Mrs. Heather wouldn't give in to that. Whether she gives in to it or whether she doesn't give in to it, it's a dream after my hair was. And as loom and as shuttles and as warp and bars and as bobbins and the threads he put upon the ships and wrecks were all a dream. And the only thing he ever wove upon his loom was a dream. And what's more, every woman that ever come into his head and every wife he married was a dream. I'm telling you that, Nan, and I'm telling it to you of the weaver. His wife was a dream, and his death is a dream. And his widow there is a dream, and all the world is a dream. Do you hear me, Nan? This world is all a dream. I hear you very well, Father. And I'm a dream. This is the most terrible old man yet. I'm a dream. The idiot laughing in the street, the king looking at his crown, the woman turning her head to the sound of a man's step, the bells ringing in the belfry, the man walking his land, the weaver as his loom, the cooper as his battle, the pope stooping for his red slippers. They're all a dream. Well, there was the legendary Arthur O'Sullivan in the weaver's grave with uh, Moore O'Sullivan, and, of course, you were in there yourself, Peg, weren't you? Uh, that was the first time we won the Prix d'Italia, mm. and um, we were taken to the Shelburne Hotel, great reception, and presented with uh, gold medals. Um, it was then transferred to television, so I don't know what you feel about it, Hall. Was the radio presentation uh, superior to the television? How do you think it transferred? Uh, not only was it uh, on television, and you played yourself in it, Peg, mm. uh, I recall, uh, but it was also done uh, in the Peacock uh, um, uh, on stage, and, and Maureen Egona, Louis Silvertis, and was a fine actress, played uh, the part you played, I remember, in the Peacock yes. production. Well, Peg's question it, it, it was, was, was it better it was on really radio? Essentially a radio yeah. Yes, yeah. the word imagery was absolutely mm. wonderful. I mean, the antics of the, of the two old men, um, mm. Eamon Kelly and Tom Studley, it was... W I mean, you could visualise it as you heard, heard the antics they got up to. That's right. But somehow when you saw it, it it's, uh, I don't think it was quite as funny. No. And, and Archie O'Sullivan, again, came from a different... There's no harm mentioning where they came from, some of those people who were with us. Archie w was an out-and-out -out professional. Um, John Stevenson, uh, I think all his life, was, uh, until he came into Radio Air and was working as a, as, a, as a printer in the stamping department in the castle. But Archie seemed to be uh, spent his life on he was tour in the fit -ups, with yeah. Louis Dalton yeah. and all the touring companies yeah. before ever he came to the rep. And uh, he, he, he was well-known on the stage. I remember him in The Black Stranger. But, but winning the Italia yes. Prize gave, uh, uh, not because uh, of my particular association, but it gave, it gave, it was a great feather in 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 the reps cap, and it, it was produced, I think, in about twenty other countries in different languages. Well, it was a great adaptation, Michal, and of course a superb performance from Archie. Over the years, guests of international standing have been more than happy to appear with the rep. Sybil Thorndike, Lynn Redgrave, Colin Blakely, Harry Andrews, we'll have more about him later, and Spike Milligan, to name but a few. We also should mention Michal MacLeamore and his partner Hilton Edwards. And it's Hilton we hear next in the role of Christopher Marlowe's Dr Faustus, having conjured up a somewhat familiar-sounding devil. Now, Faustus... 
What wouldst thou have me do? I charge thee, wait upon me whilst I live to do whatever Faustus shall command, be it to make the moon drop from her sphere or the ocean to overwhelm the world. I am a servant to great Lucifer and may not follow thee without his leave. No more than he commands must we perform. Did not he charge thee to appear to me? No, I came now hither of mine own accord. Did not my conjuring raise thee? Speak. That was the cause, but yet Perachid ends. From Dan Treston's 1964 production of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, Hilton Edwards in the title role, and of course yourself, Aidan Grinnell, as Mephistopheles. Did you... You worked with Hilton, of course, quite a lot, didn't you? Yes, I did, quite a lot, and Hilton was a hero of mine. Not to begin with, because I felt he was very intimidating. But that wore off very soon. I realised really what he was. his main interest in life was getting the show on the road, lighting it, and making sure that nobody disgraced him, particularly in the smaller parts. And he, he really was a great director. He was a director who would do what is forbidden nowadays to directors. He would leap on the stage and show the actor exactly how he wished him to perform a certain movement or a certain piece of business. And he had a tremendous deftness and skill about little pieces of stage business. He was a brilliant Iago. And on one particular speech to Rodrigo, I think, plotting the downfall of Othello, he peeled an apple in one continuous movement in time with the verse, so that the peel unwound in a hypnotic way while he concentrated on the peeling, and yet the verse was there sowing the evil into Rodrigo's mind. And it was done and timed absolutely to perfection. He had an enormous rings of peel Mm -hmm. all joined together at the end of it. That was typical of Hilton, one piece of business. He filled a pipe in a hypnotic way too, as the old sea captain in Anna Christie. And, of course, uh, I mean, the voice was so good and the command of language. Did he do other radio work, Peg? Yes, I remember he came in to play in the Barretts of Wimpole Street and um, it was quite electrifying because he suggested the incestuous relationship between himself and his daughter Elizabeth. And uh, then there was the her young cousin who came in and... Uh, again, he, he suggested this sexual, the sexual overtones there as well. Uh, that was beautifully played by Daphne Carroll. I always remember her exit line. She said, Arrivederci Dewey's Bar. <laughs> to <laughs> well, Elizabeth. <laughs> we shouldn't uh, uh, forget the producer either, Dan Treston. Now, Dan had many achievements in radio. Apart from being a noteworthy producer, he was an actor and a writer, and his play Piano in the River won the 1965 Pre Italia. They say pianos cost more to move than to buy. You can get one for a song, but transportation is the problem. Now, take that piano in. Well, now, I don't need to mention the name of the pub on the far key. I never saw a piano there. No, but there is one. Isn't the whole roof resting on a piano in the empty room above the upstairs lounge? If they move that piano, the whole second place will collapse. That's for you never seen it. But mark my words. One day I know that when Tommy Owens, Joe Comfort and Mick Borden are drinking there with their intellectual friends, crash, 
bang, and the piano will drop right through the ceiling and the roof on top of it. And that'll be the end of... Well, you know where. Do you know that the devil was seen in that pub when it was under a, a different name? Yeah, well, perhaps, perhaps, but that doesn't answer my question. Whose piano was this? Where did it come from? Seamus Ford and Brendan Colwell, always known to us as Benny, in Dan Treston's 1965 Pre-Italia winner, Piano in the River. They're two legends, aren't they, Seamus Ford and, and Benny Colwell? Oh, yes. You've worked with them quite a lot, haven't you, Colette? Brendan must be in a lot of prize-winning plays. I was in one he did, which won the Premio Andas another year, a play by Joe O'Donnell. But what I... Seamus and Brendan were part of what I call the Dublin cast, and I loved being in any of the O'Caseys mm. with them. Um... Brendan was a wonderful fluter, fluter in the Plough and the Stars, and uh, Seamus Ford, I think, played. Did he play Uncle Peter another time? But they were wonderful mm. in any of those yeah. those plays, and it was great to be in them with them. You know, they were. Uh, and the other thing experience. was, I mean, they understood O'Casey so well. Oh didn't yes, they? you know, yes, they, they and the sounds yeah. and the yeah. the people in them and everything. They were. It was wonderful. And the rhythm to be in. of the and the rhythm of the speeches, mm. yes. And and Peg indeed was a wonderful Juno. Of course, all of the actors in the rep had to display a remarkable versatility and play a wide range of parts. Sometimes the lead, sometimes a lord or lady to swell a scene or two, sometimes a small child, and sometimes even animals of every shape and size. I think you yourself, Peg, you've played so many roles. But to me, you will always be the long-suffering Alice Foley. I don't even expect the occasional box of chocolates or a bunch of flowers. Flowers? Well, you needn't seem so surprised. Some men have been known to buy them for their wives. In fact, while I was waiting for you at the window just now, I saw your next-door neighbour, Jack Kelly, bringing some home to his wife. Huh? Oh, they weren't anything to write home about, only a bunch of violets. But it was the thought. Uh, as a matter of fact, As Alice, I, I was saying, I don't expect those sort of things, but I do expect a little consideration. Look, I know you'll never believe me, Alice, but There's I... There's the rain. I knew it was going to turn wet. Oh, that's a pity... I hope it'll have eased off before we start out for the cinema. I'm not going to any cinema tonight. Oh, what sort of a fool do you take me for? Get myself soaking wet, traips and all that way to see an old film when I can make myself comfortable at home. Honestly, Tom, you think you hadn't a home at all the way you were always wanting to leave it? I just can't understand you sometimes. You can't understand me. <laughs> that makes two of us, Alice. Sometimes I just can't understand you. With Flowers, an episode from the most successful or probably the only really successful situation comedy on Radio Aaron, The Foley Family by David Hayes. George Green was the irascible Tom Foley and Peg Monaghan played his poor wife Alice. Incidentally, the music, because I know somebody's going to write in and ask about it, it is Le Jet d'Eau by Sidney Smith. Now, haven't I done my research well? <laughs> you did, of course, yes, I know that. You did it very well, Jack. Thank you very much, behold. The plays you succeed uh, bef uh, long before pre uh, there was television, 
uh, on Sunday nights. They were an institution because they came after Joe Linane's uh, question, question time. time. Mm. They had an enormous audience, and we had a, a handover of a very good audience, and the radio Erden players were well able to hold that, whether they were doing Shakespeare or, or doing uh, George Shields. Peg, what was it like playing Alice Foley? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that, uh, as you mentioned yourself, Jerry, David Hayes, uh, the writer, he had a natural gift for situation mm. comedy. Yeah. And he had, had that wonderful conversational technique that's so required for radio. Uh, I mean, you were handed the script and every character that he introduced into the script, they were so easy to play. And yet, of course, when you come to the character, the main character of Tom Foley, what George Green added to that character uh, was something out of the ordinary. It was quite extraordinary. There's a great quality of self-righteous indignation. Oh, absolutely. He was entrenched in the character. And when he would turn around and say to me, Jeannie McAleish, I don't understand! (laughs) I would go speechless. And, you know, you really had to laugh it out of your system during the rehearsal because... uh, and then be absolutely po-faced when (laughs) when your line came. But he'd look at you in astonishment then when he'd see that you had folded up laughing. But um, But tell me about Alice herself. I mean, she was really the the power behind the throne, wasn't she? Well, I remember David Hayes uh, described her character as the elastoplast, somebody who just stuck together the pieces, the destruction that Tom managed to uh, (laughs) create (laughs) everywhere in every situation he found himself. Uh, And... uh, I think he said she was. She's like a lot of wives that she's there, uh, listening patiently, and uh, tries to patch it together again and keep the f- keep the family on the road, as it were. Well, when George Green died sadly in 1985, many tributes were paid by his colleagues and friends, including this one. He was a kindly critic. He was always constructive, with positive advice on what it was to be an actor. When I joined the Radio Aaron Players in 1957, he was still my mentor. To George, preparation was all. His was the art that conceals art, and his command, authority and presence in performance was the result of painstaking research and preparation. Once he suggested that I read Ulysses, and when I found this unrewarding, he told me to go back and read it aloud. As with all his advice, this worked. That's the voice of a man who's equally at home on radio, television, the big screen or the stage. He's currently receiving rave notices for his performance in The Weir by Conor McPherson at London's Royal Court Theatre, and he's taken time out to join us. Jim Norton, how are you, sir? I'm very well, and I'm very, very thrilled to be able to join you. I'm just sorry I can't be there. And you know, uh, Peg, Aidan, Colesse yes, and Michal, they're all here? How are you all? Yeah, hi, Peg. Jim, you started as a, a, a child actor with the rep. I'm afraid I did, yeah. <laughs> the boy wonder. It all started out with a song. I like lots of show business stories. Uh, I, I appeared on a program called Children of the Microphone way back. I think I sang Who is Sylvia in my piping <laughs> voice. And uh, then there was a, a radio series called Sinbad the Sailor, which I was asked to be in. I think Faye Sargent and Kitty O'Callaghan did that. And during the run of that show, uh, the part of Brendan and the Foley family became... Uh, available. I guess the actor who played it, his voice had broken, so I was auditioned by Seamus Brannock to for the Foley family, and I joined 
for many happy years I played Brendan with Peggy, of course, as my radio mother. <laughs> I remember your quiet authority, even at that age. <laughs> <laughs> well, the authorities there may not be so quiet anymore. <laughs> I don't think so. So, no. uh, listen, you joined the rep proper, when was it, 57? In 1957, yeah, yeah. I joined the rep, and I was, I was there from 57 until 1963, which were like the, I think, the happiest years of my life, because I... I was surrounded by, being a kind of quite a young person, I was surrounded by these truly wonderful actors who were a source of great wisdom, advice, encouragement, you know, constructive criticism. Uh, it was a wonderful time, and uh, it really was like jumping in the deep end, because it wasn't a question of can you play the part, you were cast, and you had to do it. Yeah. So it was a terrific training ground, which I, I'll never forget, because I learned so much during that time. Yeah, Colette was saying something similar earlier, but, but one of the things that, that, that strikes me about the, the rep is, you know, you know the, the way friendships have, have lasted. This is true, yes, yeah. So, I mean, some amazing, amazing people. They were just uh, extraordinary. I mean, Eamon Kelly, you know, who I worked with quite recently yeah. in the theatre, and, of course, Eamon Keane and Peg, Una Collins, Frank O'Dwyer, Benny Caldwell, and, and, of course, Tom Studley, who was, I mean, the man of many parts, an extraordinary actor. And there was just, just it was just wonderful, because there was so much to learn. And, and the great thing about the rep is that when I joined, all the actors who were in the company had had very successful um, careers in the theatre prior yeah. to that. So they had all that wealth of, uh, of uh, experience that uh, I was able to kind of draw on. And but you were from. right, Jim, when you said uh, uh, George was such a kindly critic. He was. Because I, I remember uh, a play I was in uh, called um, A Child is Born, it was by Stephen Vincent Bennett, an American mm. a verse play, and I had a line to say... Uh, I am a barren bow, and I would say, I am a barren bow, you see. And George said, no, he said, you must put the emphasis on the barren. And he looked at me with those huge <laughs> brown eyes and said, remember, you are barren, yes. you yes. see. And then, yes. of course, we dissolved in laughter and then said, now say it. So I had to go over and over it again and said, I am a barren bow. Jim, when we were talking recently, you were telling me that you uh, had experience of uh, another, well, I suppose you could call him classical Irish writer, Brendan Bean. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. Well, I was, <laughs> I was quite young at the time, and, and it was a play. I think it may well have been one of Bean's first plays, a play called Moving Out. Oh, yeah. It was about, yeah, you know, families moving yeah. out from the inner city out to Ballyfermot, and uh, I played a little Dublin Gurrier in it. And I, I thought this man was amazing, this wonderful kind of uh, character who'd sit on the floor of the studio and talk to me. I think I was about 12, 13. And he said to me one day, he said, uh, what does your L fella do? I, said, <laughs> I, I was very proud. I said, my, my father is the manager of bacon shops in Grafton Street. But then it was a kind of posh shop where they sold camembert and things like that and uh, had a delicatessen. So the next day, Bean appeared at the door of the shop late in the evening. I think he probably had had a few. And he roared up the, the, the length of this shop. He said, hey, Norton yelled, never be as good a manager's son. <laughs> because my father came out and said, who the hell was that? Who was that man who came in with his shirt open down to his navel? I said, oh, he's called Brendan Bean. He's, he's, a, he's actually a, a writer. He's a very good writer. So he and Brendan Bean, my dad and Brendan Bean, eventually became great friends. And whenever Brendan had a good payday, he'd go in and get a side of bacon or whatever. And they remained friends until Brendan died. It was a great story, Jim. <laughs> you, you know, I, I was saying a few minutes ago to Peg how in spite of all the parts you played, that to me she'll always be Alice Foley. But to me, you're always going to be Tom Sawyer. So oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thanks very much for joining us, Not Jim. And continued success to you. Yes, and good luck to you all. Thanks Bye-bye, a million, Jim. Jim. God bless Bye-bye. you. Well, Jim mentioned Brendan Bean, and we turn now to the 1956 production of his powerful play, The Queer Fellow. Next I was on was a little Protestant lad. He asked to be 
walk backwards from the condemned cell to the hanghouse so she wouldn't see the rope. Then the young clergyman who was attending asked if the canon would come with him. He had never seen an execution before. I went to the canon that night and I asked him. A fine big man he was those times. Regan says he, I thought I might have escaped this time. But you'll never escape. I suppose neither of us ever will. Ah, well. Ah, well, says he, maybe being hung 20 times will get us a minute or two sooner out of purgatory. And that'll be something, Regan. That'll be something. Amen. Here near. In the morning, the young clergyman was great and read a bit of the Bible with the young Protestant lad while we waited outside. Then he came out with him, holding his hand and telling him in their own way to lean on God's mercy that was stronger than the power of men. And I walked beside him and guided him backwards onto the trap and under the beam. Then the rope was put round him and the washer under his ear and the hood down over him. And the young clergyman still called out to me in a grand steady voice in through the hood and stroked his head till he went down. Noel Lynch is the young warder Kremen, who, on the night before a hanging, listens to the advice of his mentor, Warder Regan, played by an actor who's been correctly described as a national treasure, Eamon Kelly. Eamon Kelly, of course, uh, came uh, from the Listowel drama group. I remember himself and his wife, Maura O'Sullivan, coming up. Uh, and I had seen them at some festival down in Limerick, and they came up. And Eamon Kelly... Um, um, not from Listowel, but he played with the Listowel players, and just like Eamon Keane, he was a first-class radio man. But he went on, and still is, uh, I think, one of the great uh, storytellers of, of this generation. The voices of the RTE players or the rep were familiar by now to radio listeners, but no one really knew what they actually looked like. Well, that situation was rectified when the company took to the stage of the Gaiety Theatre for the 1978 Dublin Theatre Festival with a Fado farce, Sauce for the Goose. But if you refuse to go, I shall call my husband. Oh, you've got a husband. Precisely. All right, then. Let's forget the idiot. Idiot. My husband. Husbands of attractive women are always idiots. Very well, then. We shall see how this idiot deals with you. You refuse to go. More than ever now. Very well. Crockin! Oh, what a hideous name. Crockin! You call me, darling? Fuffer, damnation! Fontaine! I've got to see you! My dear fellow! How are you? Fine, fine. He knows you. Well, this is a surprise. Surprise? You're in my house. You must have expected to see me. No. I mean, what a surprise for you. Yes, it certainly is. Colette Proctor, Aidan Grinnell and Jim Reed wowing the audience at the Gaiety Theatre in 1978 with Fado's Sauce for the Goose. Well, of course, apart from your role in Sauce for the Goose, you've had many triumphs in your career, Colette, not least of which was when you played Desdemona to that great British character actor, Harry Andrews, in the role of Othello. Swear thou art honest. Heaven doth truly know it. Heaven truly knows that thou art false as hell. To whom, my lord? With whom? How am I forced? Ah, this demon! Away! 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 Oh, last than every day. Why do you weep? Am I the motive of these tears, my lord? If happily you, my father, do suspect an instrument of this you're calling back, lay not your blame on me. If you have lost him, I have lost him too. Had it pleased heaven to try me with affliction, 
had they rained all kinds of sores and shames on my bare head, steeped me in poverty to the very lips, given to captivity me and my utmost hopes, I should have found in some place of my soul a drop of patience. But alas, to make me a fixed figure for the time of scorn, to point his slow, unmoving finger at. I hope my noble lord esteems me honest. Ah, oh, aye. Summer flies are in the shambles that quicken even with blowing. Oh, the weed. What so lovely fair and smells so sweet that the sense aches at thee. Wouldst thou hadst ne'er been born. Alas, what ignorant sin have I committed? Was this fair paper, this most goodly book, made to write whore upon what committed? Committed? <laughs> oh, thou public commoner, what committed? Impudent strumpet! Oh, well, you do me wrong! Are you not a strumpet? No, as I am a Christian. If to preserve this vessel for my lord from any other foul unlawful touch be not to be a strumpet, I am none. What, not a whore? No, as I shall be saved. It's possible. Oh, heaven forgive us. Colette Proctor as Desdemona and Harry Andrews as Othello in Lawrence Foster's 1985 production of Shakespeare's tale of jealousy and revenge. Colette, Harry Andrews, everybody knows the face, but few people will be able to put an name to Yes, I know one always associates him with film, and he's so well known in that sphere, but he is a great Shakespearean actor and was a great Shakespearean actor, and it was wonderful working with him. He was a lovely man, and he was very nice to work with. And Lawrence always does a great production on Shakespeare and is great with actors. But uh, that was, it's a lovely play. I enjoyed yeah. it very much. I, th- I think I'd have to rate it in my in my top ten productions, you know, ever. That really? I oh, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. But this is, would you look at the time, and there are so many things we haven't talked about and so many people we haven't mentioned, and I hope they'll forgive us. But I think it's fair to say that we could do another ten of these programmes and we'd still only be scratching the surface. My thanks to Peg Monaghan, Colette Proctor, Aidan Grinnell and Michal O'Hay for sharing their memories Thank you, with us. Jerry. Thanks very much. Very Thank pleasant you. evening. Thanks to Thank you. you very ho- much. Thanks, Michal. Thanks to you at home for listening. And a very sincere thank you to all those temporary, unestablished civil servants, the ladies and gentlemen, past and present, of the RTE players, the Radio Air and Repertory Company, the Rep, for all the enjoyment which they've brought to us during the last 50 years. And long may the great tradition of radio drama in RTE continue. We leave you now with a landmark in broadcasting history, endorsed by no less an authority than the Guinness Book of Records. These are the closing moments from the 31-hour dramatisation and continuous broadcast on June the 16th and 17th, 1982, of James Joyce's Ulysses. Once again, the brainchild of Michal O'Hay, and I think all of us were in it at one stage or another. Peg Monaghan plays Molly Bloom. Good night. God bless you. As for them saying there's no God, I wouldn't give a snap of my two fingers for all their learning. Why don't they go and create something I often asked him? Atheists, or whatever they call themselves, go and wash the cobbles off themselves first. Then they go howling for the priest and they dying. And why? Why? Because they're afraid of hell on account of their bad conscience. Ah, yes, I know them well. Who was the first person in the universe before there was anybody that made it all? Who? Ah? That they don't know. Neither do I, so there you are. They might as well try to stop the sun from rising tomorrow.
The sun shines for you, he said, the day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hoth Head, in the grey tweed suit and his straw hat, the day I got him to propose to me. Yes, first I gave him the bit of seed cake out of my mouth, and it was leap year like now. Yes, sixteen years ago. My God, after that long kiss, I near lost my breath. Yes, he said, I was a flower of the mountain. Yes, so we are, flowers, all a woman's body. Yes, that was the one true thing he said in his life, and the sun shines for you today. Yes, that was why I liked him, because I saw he understood or felt what a woman is, and I knew I could always get round him, and I gave him all the pleasure I could, leading him on till he asked me to say yes. And I wouldn't answer first only looked out over the sea and the sky. I was thinking of so many things he didn't know of. Mulvey and Mr. Stanhope and Hester and Father and old Captain Groves and the sailors playing all birds fly and I say stoop and washing up dishes they called it on the pier and the sentry in front of the governor's house with the thing round his white helmet, poor devil half roasted and the Spanish girls laughing in their shawls and their tall combs, and the auctions in the morning, the Greeks and the Jews and the Arabs and the devil knows who else from all the ends of Europe, and Duke Street and the Fowl Market all clucking outside Larby Sharon's, and the poor donkeys slipping half asleep, and the vague fellows in the cloaks asleep in the shade on the steps, and the big wheels of the carts of the bulls, and the old castle thousands of years old, Yes, and those handsome moors all in white and turbans like kings asking you to sit down in the little bit of a shop and Rhonda with the old windows of the posadas glancing eyes a lattice hid for her lover to kiss the iron and the wine shops half open at night and the castanets and the night we missed the boat at Algeciris the watchman going about serene with his lamp and oh that awful deep down torrent oh and the sea, the sea, crimson, sometimes like fire, and the glorious sunsets, and the fig trees in the Alameda Gardens, yes, and all the queer little streets, and pink and blue and yellow houses, and the rose gardens, and the jessamine, and the geraniums, and cactuses, and Gibraltar as a girl, where I was a flower of the mountain, yes, when I put the rose in my hair like the Andalusian girls used, or shall I wear red? Yes, and how he kissed me under the Moorish wall, and I thought, well, as well him as another, and then I asked him with my eyes to ask again. Yes, and then he asked me, would I? Yes, to say yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms round him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. Yes, I said, yes, I will, yes.